I would say the Métis all track back to the fur trade, and they probably all have some connections in the Hudson Bay Company. That's Jean Taillet, Indigenous rights lawyer and author of The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation. She's our guest discussing the Hudson's Bay Company and the rise of that Métis Nation as the HBC turns 350 years old on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with a fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. And we flew over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 lives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada. Welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by HBC Heritage. I'm your host, David McGuffin. We're continuing our journey into the history of Canada as seen through the prism of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. At its peak as a fur trading empire, the HBC once administered one-twelfth of the Earth's surface, much of what is now modern Canada. And today, we're going to dive into the fascinating story of the HBC and the Métis Nation in the Canadian Northwest. The Métis are a people of mixed First Nations and European ancestry, born from the fur traders' expansion deep into what is now Western Canada in the late 1700s. The Métis are perhaps best known to most Canadians as the ruggedly independent culture of buffalo hunters and fur traders and farmers who took on the Canadian government in the Riel and Northwest Rebellions in 1869 and 1885. But we're going to go back much further than that, back to the heyday of the voyageurs and the fur trade. I counted it up once and they had something like nine voyageur ancestors. Jean Taillet is a leading international expert on Indigenous law. She's also the great-grandniece of Canada's most famous Métis leader, Louis Riel. Like many Métis, she traces her roots back to the late 1700s, back to when an upstart group of Montreal businessmen formed the Northwest Company. Their aim was to crack into the lucrative fur trade dominated by the Hudson's Bay Company. They did this by circumventing HBC territory, sending canoe flotillas of French-Canadian voyageurs up through the Great Lakes and into the prairies to trade for furs. This competition forced the HBC out of its forts, hugging Hudson's Bay, and deeper into the lands of the First Nations peoples as well. All of this led to a growing number of alliances between First Nations and fur traders. Some of these were formalized through marriage. Sometimes marriages just happened. There were also a lot less formal unions. Ultimately, there were a lot of children born out of the meeting of these two cultures at this time. I would say that the Métis Nation has its biggest roots in the Northwest Company, that the French voyageurs and traders who worked with the Northwest Company formed the core group. That's not to say that there weren't people who are part of the Métis Nation who come from that English Hudson Bay Company tradition, 
but I'd say the core group that started the Métis Nation, that developed the nationalist idea, that saw themselves as a unique and separate people, that primarily comes from the Francophone Norwester tradition. So I asked Jean Taye to take us back to the moment when that tradition began to take root. To my mind, it's not until you get to about 1790 that the generation born in that 1790s period hits the critical mass that we're looking for to create a new culture. That's the generation that there's enough of them and, and they start to give themselves a name and they start to act as a different entity. The language uh, that we now call Machif, um starts to develop at that point and there's enough of them that they see themselves as separate from their mother's First Nations community and from their father's fur trader Western Christian community. They literally physically separate themselves and they separate themselves in their mindset. They start to think of themselves as a new people and they call themselves La Nouvelle Nation, right? And everybody sees it. It isn't just them proclaiming it. We see it in the fur traders' journals that um, they start to call them because before that they're calling them the sons of the freemen or the sons of the traders um, and their children. But by the time you get to when that 1790s group is starting to hit their adulthood, which is, you know, around the early 1800s, you, everybody starts to recognize them as a separate group. And they start to call them the bois brûlés um, or the brûlés. Um, so, every, so the traders are recognizing a new group that's distinct. The group itself is calling itself distinct. And it's starting, that's the beginnings of this new culture that we now call the Métis Nation. So if you look back at the old, as you say, the Traders Records, Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company, do is, is there a recognition that they play a unique role within the fur trade? Do you see them coming up? And how early do you start seeing them coming up? Um, I think we start to see them again in that 1790s period because that's when you get the sons are hitting their majority and they're starting to work for the fur trade companies um, as traders but and as hunters and as voyageurs. And so in, what you start to see then is this gradual takeover of the work of the voyageurs begins to more and more be Métis as opposed to French Canadians from the Trois-Rivières area, which is what it originally was. And more and more over the years, you start to see the Métis take over the voyageur roles. They also start to work in, as traders for the Hudson's Bay Company um, and the Norwesters, but they occupy pretty low positions for the most part. They're, they're their opportunities for advancement up the ranks are limited, and that's the colonial racist ideas that are coming out of out of um, Britain at the time. That these young men are good for translation, and they're good to do hunting, and they're good to do this. But no, we're not going to make them the factor of the company, and we're not going to make them a partner. Um, so that's what you see with Cuthbert Grant, who's the first big national leader of the Métis Nation. His father is a very high up 
um, fur trader and partner in the Hudson's Bay Company, but that option is never available to Cuthbert or to his ilk, right? The sons of those men never um, do that. And then, of course, the Hudson's Bay Company changes dramatically in 1821 when it merges with the Northwest Company, and then you're seeing a change in the style and logistics of the company. So the they're, the Métis, young Métis boys are really important in those early years, and they form the backbone of the labor right up until, you know, 1885 and things like that. But they're, they're, they're limited in where they can go in the company hierarchy. Mm. I'd like to talk more about Cuthbert Grant and that sort of that whole notion of this racist attitudes within those companies and limiting the opportunities and just how much that played a role in because I think you're now into the period when the Métis really are as you say seeing themselves of a nation and there's some pretty dramatic moments that Cuthbert Grant is really at the center of. Yeah and that starts when the Hudson's Bay Company decides to get into a what we would say today totally different business right they they've got mission creep right? they 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 start out as a fur trade company right and then all of a sudden by the time you're talking 1810 lord selkirk comes along and he is looking to become a benevolent colonist right and he marries an heiress who happens to have inherited quite a few shares in the Hudson's Bay Company. And by that means, he is now one of the controlling directors. He persuades the directors uh, to sell, and I put that in quotes, him 116,000 square miles in Red River for 10 shillings. It's a nominal sale. That's just tokenism, the amount of money. The idea is then he sends out Selkirk settlers who are mostly displaced Highlanders, but are also some Irish and some English, and there's a bit of a mix, but British people who are needing land to be settled so that they're not the impoverished poor haunting the cities of Britain. And so they come out, and the problem is they come out and they assume a legal... Uh, governance of the Red River area. They bring their own governor and he stands and has a big ceremony. This is 1812 uh, on the banks of the Red River and, you know, plants his flag and proclaims that he's now the lord and owner of everything and everybody, you know, uh, has to obey their laws. And the Métis, you know, they, they don't, they're not characteristically quiet, shy people. And they didn't take well to this instant importation of laws that were only to the benefit of these few straggly, struggling um, people who wanted to farm. And you have to remember, they thought farming was slightly crazy. We still call Winnipeg, even to this day, people call it Winterpeg because it's unsuitable farming area eight months of the year. And... This was at that time also, you know, this is the home where the buffalo roamed, right? You know, so the idea that farmers would set up in the middle of the buffalo herds and in the middle of this place. So anyway, Cuthbert Grant is one of the sons of one of the Norwesters, and he is... But can I just stop you before you get into him? Can we... So the Métis are are there living, they're trapping, they're hunting, living off the land, and there's sizable numbers of them, and they've been there for a while. Yes, they've been there 
what we're saying is that by the 1790s, that generation who are born in that generation, so that's Cuthbert Grant's generation, they're now um, down, Cuthbert Grant's there, 1812, they're there as a group uh, living, hunting the buffalo already and living and trading and heavily connected with their Ojibwe families who are in that Red River area. And you have to remember, when I talk about Red River, I do not mean just Southern Manitoba. Red River in those days would have, would have gone all the way to into Capel area in Saskatchewan. The the Métis thought of, the and the in, Indigenous peoples all, thought of the Red and the Assiniboine Rivers as one river. So Lord Selkirk comes in, and the HBC are presumably happy to have him there. They like the idea of a farming community, I guess. Would that be something oh. that would supply their forts and this would be blocking the northwest company from oh yeah they see this as a wonderful opportunity so lord selkirk is somewhat of a benevolent um guy who's trying to be a do-gooder but the rest of the board is much more firmly rooted on the ground they see this settlement as you're right being able to block the northwest company they see it as a farming community that can provide food for their voyageurs and so instead of having to bring it import it from England so it's cheaper they've got and they're all going to have families and then they see it as a supply of labor for them and then the nice added benefit that they can set up this community that would uh, hopefully be a a total block uh, to their rival the Northwest Company so they see this as a win-win all the way down the line and so then the governor comes and he plants the flag and, and bring us back to Cuthbert Grant. Yeah, so Cuthbert Grant um, has arrived uh, back from being educated in Montreal. He's arrived back in uh, the Northwest right up just around the same time, a little bit before the Selkirk settlers come. And he's immediately seen by everybody as this uh, very, very uh, competent man. They see him as a potential leader almost instantly. So he's young, right? He's very, very young. He's only 21 or 22. But they can see already he speaks English, he speaks French, he speaks Cree, he speaks Ojibwe. He's a good leader. He's smart. He's an accomplished horseman. He's a kind man. And he's good. He's very good at what he does. And he immediately becomes um, a leader of a young group of men that he calls his jeunes his young men or his young people. And he creates this little force. You could call it a gang <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, but it's essentially, he's got a group of young men who follow him. And it's this group that becomes the backbone of the, of the Métis Nation. And it's all because, uh, at least in my estimation, because Cuthbert Grant has these extraordinary charismatic leadership qualities about him that he's able to do this. And so he is able to get them to act in the interests of what is they're thinking of as the Bois Brûlé. Uh, he calls them that. That's what they call themselves. So they're acting in their own interests now, not just in the interests of the trading companies. And that's what we're really seeing in that 1812, 1813, 1814, 1815. They create their own flag. They are starting to call themselves the Brûlés. They act together and they start to act as a military force, as a 
and you know they pick up arms and they're acting to protect their own interests and it's under his leadership and this leads to some some actual conflict doesn't yeah, it yeah a, a battle um, actually more than one battle they they are continually harassing the Hudson Bay company uh, transportation routes and they're doing whatever they can to uh, you know, we, we call this a trade war, and we shouldn't underestimate the word war here. This is not trade wars the way we think of them in the 21st century, where we think of people, you know, highly competitive. These guys were literally killing each other. <laughs> they were they were starving each other's forts out if they could. They were not above um, murder. And so there was a lot of, um, you know, this was... This was highly charged atmosphere. And Cuthbert Grant was right in the thick of it on behalf of the Norwesters, although it appears that he had two, wore two hats. He acted for the Norwesters and brought his men along with him to act in the interests of the Norwesters, which is to try and stop the Hudson Bay Company. But he also sometimes acted just on behalf of the Bois Brule. How important is that and that shift to settlers moving into this region in the rise of the Métis Nation? I think we've gotten a, a good hint of it there. Yeah, well, well, first of all, you've got the Hudson Bay Company purporting to be a government, um, a landowner, and, the, and a trading company, and they keep trying to implement their charter, what they consider to be a charter monopoly. Right, and so that that's the issue that the Métis Nation galvanizes its existence around is fighting the monopoly assertion of the Hudson's Bay Company, and it becomes their almost single-minded goal uh, politically. Now, they obviously have other goals of you know, hunting buffalo and raising their families and they have their own political entities arising uh, throughout this, but they're chafing under the Hudson Bay Company rule and the continued attempt of the Hudson Bay Company to impose its monopoly. It erupts into a very big battle called, which we today call the Battle of Seven Oaks. The Métis always called that the victory of the Frog Plain. But really what it is, is Cuthbert Grant and the Métis um, meet head-to-head -head at an event on June 19th, um, 1816, and there's a confrontation, and within 10 minutes, the governor and all of the men who are there, except for two or three, are slaughtered by the Métis. And... Um, that event uh, is a huge event in history of the Northwest. It engages Canada, who then send a commissioner in, and Lord Selkirk gets on his high horse and gets a bunch of Swiss mercenaries and comes running out west and seizing forts and doing all kinds of things, um, trying to bribe Métis to join his side which they won't do, and it becomes a huge issue for Britain because they've suddenly woken up with a start and realized that there was a real problem here. And so they forced a merger between the Hudson Bay Company 
and the Norwesters. And then the competition is gone, and the Hudson Bay Company then thinks it can just, that it's got, it's won, it's got control, and it can impose its... um, it's, well, it's genuinely a monopoly now, which they were always meant to have, right? Well, it's, on paper, know. they always yeah. thought they had a monopoly, but they were never able to actually implement that monopoly until the merger. So move us forward then. We've had this victory by Cuthbert Grant, and the, the British have now taken notice of this new Métis nation. Okay. There's a flag at this point too, I think. Yes, the flag appears before the Battle of Seven Oaks. The the flag appears around 1815 first, and it may have been around earlier. The problem with all of what we know today is we can only go back into the written records. So in 1815, I think it's in June, is the first time one of the Hudson Bay Company people actually writes down in one of the journals that the half-breeds went by and they had their flag and describes it and um but you have to it's the flag we know today too right it's the it is the flag different color though the first sighting was with a red background a white infinity sign sitting on a red background the second sighting that's written down that we have a record of is a few months later i think in september of uh, 1815 and it's got a blue background which is interesting because you start thinking about, okay, why red, why blue? My own mind goes, okay, where do you get fabric to make a flag in those days? And obviously the only place you're going to get it is from the trading companies. So I actually went and looked at what kind of fabric you could get from the Hudson's Bay Company in 1815. And all I can say is that I think we're lucky in the Métis Nation that it's not a plaid background <laughs> because plaid was by far the largest volume of fabric available in the trading company stores. So you're getting this sort of sense of a nation in part because you have friction against these incoming groups. Um, and that, that friction obviously only continues as the Red River settlement gets bigger and bigger, I would assume. I think that um, opposition to an outside force is always one of the galvanizing features of the creation of a new culture. And so that this is the story of the Métis Nation. The Hudson's Bay Company and the Selkirk settlers come in, they try to impose their laws, they try to restrict the Métis from hunting buffalo, they try to take all the resources, they pass a whole bunch of edicts that say, oh, you can't have bark from trees for roofing, uh, that only goes to us. You can't fish in the river on the good parts where you can actually catch fish because we get that. You can't hunt buffalo near the settlement because that's all for us. You can't do this. You can't do that. And they kept issuing this series of orders. And the they were annoying at first. And then the Métis just go, okay, we've had it. And that's what is leading up to the tension that heads us into the Battle of Seven Oaks. After that, and then after the merger, those tensions continue because the Hudson Bay Company still wants to control everything that's going on in the territory. So they want the Métis to go and hunt buffalo, and they want to be able to have the Métis come back and provide them with buffalo meat. So you you have to understand that the point of the buffalo meat is that it gets pounded down into pemmican, which is the major 
food source for the voyageurs who are transporting all the furs. It's almost like gasoline, yeah. right? It's the gas that those guys need to be consuming in order to be paddling 16 hours a day and expending a huge amount of calories. And so the Hudson Bay Company wants the pemmican, but the difficult part is they only want as much pemmican as they want. So they and they don't care about the robes or the hides or anything like that and they certainly don't want to send robes over to England because they're big and heavy and it's expensive and nobody really wants them over in Europe as opposed to the beautiful beaver fur that they all want because there's a hat men's hat craze that I mean really the fur trade was all about hats Canada was founded on the fashion industry, right? <laughs> That's really what the first big industry was. So the, the tension you get with the Métis Nation is they're wanted to provide food for the colony because the truth is that the colony is a disaster as an agricultural entity for about 70 years, right? When the Métis first heard that they were going to set up a farming colony, they thought it was crazy, and in fact, it was crazy. There's no logic to trying to be a farmer in Red River for most of the 19th century, right? So the people who are really providing all the food are the Métis because they're the buffalo hunters and they're the skilled horsemen and they're out there getting the food that feeds the colony. So the colony is very ambivalent about them. Um, they hate the fact that they're dependent on the Métis for their major food source. And they also, so they call them lazy, right? Which is, you have to translate that. It means the Métis are lazy because they won't act as servants right. they won't, to <laughs> the English. They, right? won't, they won't do what we tell them to do. Yeah. Exactly. And they won't act as farm labor. They're not interested in doing that. They make a very good living out on the land, yeah. hunting buffalo, fishing. They like it out there. Why would they want to sit and stoop, do stoop farm labor, right? They don't, they're not interested. Right. And they also have plots of land and houses in Red River, which they don't take a lot of care of because they're not there very much, right? So there's a tension in that way. They're not there enough. And when they're there, they're there in force, right? So it's, and they party because it's their time to all get together and hang out in Red River with their relatives. And it, it's, um, the lifestyles are diametrically opposed. They couldn't be more different. And they don't understand each other very well. So the Métis chafe under the rules of the Hudson Bay Company, which wants them to provide pemmican, but only in a exactly the amount they want. Right. And then they want, the Hudson Bay Company wants to say to the Métis, oh, and you can't trade the rest of your stuff with anybody else. We get all of it, but they don't even want all of it. They want exactly what they want. So they want to treat them like servants and nobody wants to do that. You have this just ever-growing tension between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Métis who want the charter and the monopoly gone. And they mount a huge effort to do that. I then asked Jean Taye if the culminating moment in this unraveling relationship was the sale of the Hudson Bay Company lands in the Northwest to Canada in 1869. She says it was actually 20 years before that. The culminating moment, I would say, is the Sayre trial. Mm -hmm. So I should say first that the Hudson Bay Company appoints, uh, and Lord Selkirk, appoint a series of really bad governors. 
in Red River. Like it's a just an extraordinary series of ignorant, megalomaniac, bombastic idiots. Right. And they are they're terrible. Absolutely terrible. They may be good corporate entity, but in terms of government, they're awful. And so they're trying to run it like a company with masters and servants. And in fact, it's not a company in in Red River. It's a settlement and it needs governance and they don't get it. So this tension uh, builds and builds and builds. And by the time you get to the 1840s and 1850s, it's really tense. And the Métis are fighting the monopoly moves and there's a whole series of incidents it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds the company flog men they go in and they confiscate goods they try to ship men off to england to stand trial for daring to trade in the united states they um they there's a series of ongoing skirmishes between the metis and the hudson's bay company george simpson who is the governor of the Hudson Bay Company by that point uh, is very aware that his power in Red River is hanging by a thread and Mm. that the bulk of the people, which is the Métis, they are by far the majority, are really antagonistic to the Hudson Bay Company. You talk about he's a bit of a legendary figure too and, and sort of noted as a very good manager on some levels. And I'm just curious about how that played out with them. Again, I would say the difference is that uh, George Simpson is a good manager of the company. In fact, an excellent manager. Um, He is an extraordinary man all in and of himself, but he's a terrible about governing people. He keeps passing, they keep passing these laws, but they have no ability to enforce them. And the Métis have absolutely no interest in following them. And they're the bulk of the people. So it's a... I would say a very big lost opportunity for the Hudson's Bay Company to expand and incorporate and um, use the Métis in a better way. But again, I think racism comes into play here. It's more than racism in some ways because they're racist towards the First Nations, but the Métis step even a little bit further because there's an idea that somehow the mixing of races between you know the the what they think of as themselves as the superior white christian race um and the first nations the fact that you would actually mix together this breaks all their ideas of what's socially acceptable that carries through in their language they call the metis the half breeds they always call them that that's a loaded term we don't breed mm. people we breed animals and so right. if you're saying someone is a half breed, then you are saying they're half animal. And it doesn't take a lot to guess which half they mean is the animal. Right. So anyway, you get to the Sayer trial. That What happens here is that the company is finally deciding that they're going to use their court, their court of Assiniboia, to enforce their monopoly and take some of these wayward Métis to trial for daring to trade <laughs> with someone other than the Hudson Bay Company. And uh, Guillaume Sayer and there's two other guys are charged 
with it and it goes to the court. And you have to understand this is the court of Assiniboia, which is a creature of the Hudson's Bay Company. It's staffed by their factors. The judges are their employees. The prosecutors are their employees. It's all their court, right? Yeah, so it's a kangaroo court, it's basically. A, exactly. It's a kangaroo court and the, the um, outcome of the trial is a foregone conclusion. So Cuthbert Grant, by this point, is working for the Hudson Bay Company, and he's supposed to be on the ju- the judicial council for this trial. But he wisely, I, I'm not sure whether he just decided he was sick that day and wasn't going to come. Um, I think wisely stayed out of it. But this is where we see the rise of the Riel dynasty starting because Louis Riel's father, this is when he steps into his own, and he starts leading with um, Sinclair and a couple of other men step up as the new leadership of the Métis Nation. So you're starting to see the next generation of leaders come into play here. And they they come from across the river in the hundreds, all armed, and they basically form a cordon around the court for the trial. And they won't let Sayre go in to the trial. So you've got your judge, the Husband Bay Company judge, and the court sitting in there expecting Sayer and the men to come in to stand trial, and the Métis won't let them in, and they're all heavily armed. And so anyway, they, they come to an agreement that they'll let um, Riel and Sinclair and a couple of others come in and uh, represent Sayer at the trial. Uh, the, they, of course, find him guilty, but... What they say is that they're not going, they're going to let him keep the furs. So this is bizarre, right? Okay, you're guilty of stealing the company furs to their mind, but we're going to let you keep those, but we're still going to find you guilty. Um, So, but anyway, the Métis take it as the monopoly is broken and they come out with this big shout and Riel Sr. is carrying Sayer on his shoulders and he, they're all shouting, le commerce est libre, you know, we've won, we've won. And in truth, they did. They broke the monopoly that day and it never, ever got back on its feet again. And so Louis wow. Riel, the famous Louis Riel, he was about yeah. four years old. And he remembered that day with his father made a big speech that day and he remembered it for the rest of his life. That's amazing, which which really brings us to the point more Canadians would know the history of. And at that point, the Hudson's Bay Company's basically moved out of the picture. I, I, I want to actually look at um, the cultural sort of connections to that era within Métis culture now. And, and are there things that you think of in terms of music, in terms of you know, people talk about the Hudson's Bay Blanket. Are there things that you remember growing up as a, a Métis child that, that still harken back to those times? Well, we had Hudson Bay Company blankets on our beds. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, I certainly remember. I remember that. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of the Hudson's Bay Company still being part of the culture, I think that continues for a while after this trial of 1859 it really gets completely out of the picture in 1869-70 when they sell their land to Canada or well, back to Britain and then Britain transfers it over to Canada but but um, before that the Hudson Bay Company is becoming a land speculation company it's changing from the fur company so so there's a lot of changes there but the Métis culture is born in some ways in opposition to 
the the Hudson's Bay Company and its imposition of its laws. And so then what happens is it because the Métis are not welcome and in Red River and their laws are not being used in Red River anymore, what happens is they spend more and more time out on the buffalo hunt where they develop their culture, right? So it's a bit of, of a push away from Red River. It's not to say they don't go back there, and it isn't to say that there aren't always some of them living there full time because there certainly are. But the bulk of them are out on the on the hunt for many, many, many days and months of the year. And so that's their primary influence uh, is the is the buffalo hunt. And that's where the culture, that's where the songs get developed. That's where the music comes from. That's where the food comes from. That's where their, their rules of law, because they do have laws that they wrote down, and their governance structure. It all comes from the buffalo hunt. And then the buffalo hunt starts to move further west and um, as the buffalo are being hunted more and the herds start to decline, the people move further and further and further west and away from Red River, a lot of them, because it's too far to come back very often. So Mm. that's when you start to see more Métis settlements being created in Alberta and um, especially in southern Alberta and southern Saskatchewan because it's closer to the herds. Um, There are Métis communities always in the north, right, who are along the fur trade routes of the the big rivers, right? So everything's a riverine kind of concept in the north following the river routes, but in the south it's the buffalo hunter camps, their winter camps. Um, that the it's it evolves and I would say at that point the Hudson's Bay Company is gone from Métis culture in many many ways um, and they're they've evolved beyond it well Jean Taye thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us it's been a fascinating conversation and I would encourage everyone out there to read your book can you tell us the name yes it's called The Northwest is Our Mother the story of Louis Riel's people the Métis Nation it's published by HarperCollins and it's available at most bookstores that you go to or online great it's a fascinating read I I learned a lot reading it so thanks again thanks David this was a pleasure that was author and Indigenous rights lawyer Jean Taye on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. This special series marking the 350th anniversary of the Hudson's Bay Company was made possible with the support of HBC Heritage. To learn more about the Northwest Company, Cuthbert Grant, the Battle of Seven Oaks, the Red River Colony, and much, much more, be sure to visit hbcheritage.ca. Join us next time as we dig into our archives with an 80-year-old recording by Royal Canadian Geographical Society founding president Charles Campbell. He describes his life growing up in a Hudson's Bay Company trading post in the Northwest Territories way back in the 1870s. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Tell your friends about us and be sure to spread the word on social media. Until next time, when we explore again, I'm David McGuffin. (laughs) 